So fitting to hear the words of Mary's song on the lips of a woman, uh, which is what we're going to spend the next little while focusing on, Mary's song, which the New Testament doesn't give accompanying musical notation, uh, but from the very beginning, what we have just heard has been taken to be Mary's song, the Magnificent, a hymn of the New Testament. You can see that these words are even set out slightly differently in your Bible to give expression to the elevated nature of the content. Whilst it's still fresh in your mind, I hope, keep your Bibles open, I actually want you to do something with each other. I want you to do song association. You know, word association, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Song association. You've just heard Mary's song. What is one word, a word, that comes to mind? It's so fill in the blank. Now, I actually want you to take a moment with the person next to you. Share the word that comes to mind as you listen to Mary's song. And if that's the first time you've ever heard it, it's easy, new. That's your word, okay? Take a moment. A song that comes to mind as you've just heard Mary's song. Alright, that's lots of words. That's good. Share some of them with us. Glorified. Hopeful. Obedience. Divine. Praiseworthy. Joy. Humble. Well, I'm going to take us this morning through this song according to three words that I've come up with. But it's my goal actually to show you that I've not just come up with them, but we see them here reflected in the text. But firstly, some preliminary thoughts. Mary, of course, features in the first Christmas. She's kind of key to it, right? But often, if you think about our retelling of the Christmas events, she's often silent. Uh, She's a figure in the nativity scene, for sure, but it's the angels we think of who speak powerful words, who sing glory to God in the highest. It's the wise men who ask about the star. Mary can be presented as something of a passive actor in the account except for Luke's gospel. Luke tells us, actually, that he carefully investigated the life of Jesus, gathering eyewitness accounts. And so it's quite likely that he has spent time with Mary, with the family, and has gathered this content from them. And what Luke tells us is that actually the first, most extended human testimony to the birth of Jesus is found on the lips of Mary, a song of Mary, followed by Zechariah's song, then Simeon's song, all in the first two chapters of this account. And in our services over today and tomorrow, we're going to work through those three songs, Mary's song this morning, Zechariah's this afternoon, and Simeon's tomorrow. So get back along if you can. 
It's why we're running with the theme through our Christmas services of Christmas, something to sing about. Not because we just think it's a good thing to sing about, but from the very beginning in the first events of Christmas, we find song. Here's the thing that might be surprising to you about the Bible. The Bible does not intend to be read as just a bunch of mere propositional truth statements. But rather, that the truth of its message ought to grip us, uh, confront us even, comfort us, stir us, even move us. But not as just a sentimental love song, there's plenty of those around, but as something grounded in historical events. And we see the historical events of Mary's song introduced here in verse 26, which introduces the announcement of Mary's pregnancy by the angel Gabriel, who appears to her and says, verse 28, look at it with me if you've got a Bible, Greetings, you who are highly favoured, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, try and imagine being Mary for a moment. Jump into her shoes, her sandals. She is just getting about her day and confronted out of nowhere by an almighty angel who dwells in the presence of God. This is not the cute figure that we put on our Christmas trees. This is a terrifying experience, not just for a young woman, but for an old man, Zechariah, who we read was gripped with fear when the same angel showed up before him. Imagine the shock, the terror. The angel speaks words to comfort her. Now, once she settles enough to try and comprehend what's happening, She then has to try and wrap her head around what the angel is telling her. That she will be with child and that this child will be the long-promised son of David. For a thousand years, the Jews had looked for and longed for the coming son that we heard promised in that reading from 2 Samuel chapter 7. We read there that it wouldn't be men or women who would build a house for God, but God who would build a house for himself. Not meaning literally four walls and a roof, but a name, a reputation, a dynasty, a kingdom. And God would build this house through a descendant of David, a king who would rule over God's kingdom forever. And so from the very time of David, each generation looks for this son, but each generation disappoints and dies, disappoints and dies. Mary knows her Bible. 
Mary knows this deep longing of her people. And now she's told that this son will come from her womb. Can you imagine that? Which leads to her first words in the encounter, verse 34. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. It was C.S. Lewis who coined the term chronological snobbery, which is a brilliant term which gets at what each generation tends to do as it looks at its own progress and enlightenment and looks down their nose at the previous one. It looks a long way down their nose at these primitive people in the first century who believe in miracles. But notice that though we're talking about a young woman of 2,000 years ago who doesn't have an iPhone yet, she's not so gullible and simple that she doesn't understand basic biology. How? I'm a virgin. The answer comes, verse 35, that her pregnancy will come about miraculously by the Holy Spirit without having slept with a man. And once you settle the existence of God, the eternal God, the creator God... Surely, no work is too hard for him. Mary's response, verse 38, it's a feature of the account that Luke really wants to underline. Notice it, it's one of great faith. Verse 38, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. Now, just previously, and we'll be looking at this later this afternoon, we know that from verse 36, Elizabeth, who is an old woman who has not been able to conceive, she's now pregnant, a miracle of God. We know that she's related to Mary, we're not exactly sure how, possibly cousins. But verse 41... When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And so notice actually that the first human testimony to Jesus is a dance. This is John the Baptist in the womb of Elizabeth, dancing at just six months old as Jesus, the size of a tadpole, comes into his presence. He wants to emphasise this, verse 42. In a loud voice, Elizabeth exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favoured that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfil his promises to her. Again, we read of Mary's great faith. Do you see what faith is there? Trust, confidence, taking God at his word. And she's presented by Luke as a model of faithful confidence in the word of God. Which brings us now to her song. And the first word that I'm going to associate with it, which is beautiful. There is a beauty to this song. 
especially when you put it in its setting. This is the kind of song that is reserved for those highest moments in life. Do you know, I have a similar song. It's called Jez's Song. When Bree and I first found out that she was pregnant with our first child, we were away on holidays, staying in a little shack on a big property at the back of Byron Bay, and we got news that Bree was pregnant, and I found myself bursting out of the door, running through the fields, leaping, dancing, and singing to the cows. They were my audience, and my song just went like this. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. It didn't quite have the depth of Mary's song, but it had come from deep within. There was a joy like I've never known at that news that I couldn't just say, I couldn't just speak, I couldn't just state, but sung. Mary's song is a window into her emotional and thought life, where we're taking deep into it. Have a look, verse 46. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. This is not like being made to sing the national anthem at a school assembly. (laughs) Australians This is real. This is deep. This authentic joy can't but rise up in song. Now the word in our translation glorifies there in the original is actually magnify. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Which is where, if you've heard this language, the magnificate, which is what this song is called, comes from. That's the Latin translation of magnify. Mary magnifies the Lord. It's been well pointed out that there are two ways that you can magnify something, with a microscope or a telescope. With a microscope, you magnify something that is very tiny and you make it appear to be larger than it actually is. You magnify it. A telescope is where you point this thing up into the night sky, something that looks like just a speck but actually is ginormous. And through the lens, we actually make it appear more like it really is, huge. That's the kind of magnifying that Mary does on the Lord God. That is the way that Christians magnify God. We make much of his infinite splendour and majesty. We're talking a lot about Mary here and looking at her song, but if we are to honour Mary, we are to follow her gaze, which is to adore God, to magnify and make much of him who is mighty and holy and, verse 47, her saviour. My spirit rejoices in God, my saviour. This is a very different view of God to what lots of people around us have. They'd like to think of God maybe as an inspiration, as a life coach to help me achieve all that I can in life, or maybe he's just that 
that old guy in the sky who sees whether you've been naughty or nice and gives good things or not. But Mary addresses God as her saviour. As the only one who could do for her what she could not do. To rescue her from the ravages of her sin, of a world steeped in sin. I want to put to you though that this is so beautiful. Notice because it's personal and joy-filled. She doesn't just rejoice in God the Saviour, but in God my Saviour. Do you see what a window into her soul this is? She knows Almighty God the Saviour as her personal Saviour. Can this be said of you? Can you speak of holy, mighty God as your Saviour? Because this joy of Mary is not for her alone. The New Testament says that joy is the mark of every follower of the Lord Jesus, who along with Mary can say, the Mighty One has done great things for me. Now that doesn't mean that you're always having magnificent moments, always rolling around life, bursting into song. Though, if you've never sensed a connection between your soul and your lips, you've got to wonder, there's a concern there. Mary's song is a model of someone who rejoices in knowing God, not just knowing stuff about God. And it might be for you this morning that this joy that you see here, that maybe you witness in other people, is completely foreign to you. And I'll put it to you that that'll make total sense if Christianity is just a religion that you identify with. If it's just a box to be ticked on a census. Rather than it being the way to know the God for whom you were made, your God your saviour. And so if that is you this morning, the answer is to humbly ask God in prayer for him to show himself to you as he really is. Ask him to show you what he really is offering in the gift of his son and to press into the Bible about what it is saying about him. There's the first word to associate with this song, beautiful, as we are given a window into the soul of a young woman who knows her God, who walks with her God. Here's the second word, surprising, for two reasons. The first one is quite a familiar surprise, if you can have such a thing, for those of us who have been around a lot of Christian Christmases. But it's the fact that Mary is a nobody. It is so not how any human would expect the story of God's salvation to go. We would not write this script. This year's Time Magazine Person of the Year is Taylor Swift. Her current tour sold two million tickets in one day. I think there's a bunch of you here still grieving that you weren't some of them, right? Her current tour 
has become the highest grossing tour in history, bringing in over a billion dollars, overtaking Elton John. She has an estimated net worth of over $1.1 billion, making her one of the richest women in the world, certainly one of the most powerful, given her profile and platform. Mary, she's a nobody. The woman who will mother the Son of God, the long-expected Messiah, is as unimpressive and unheard of as you could imagine. Scholars estimate that she is around the age of 14, the typical age that a young Jewish woman would marry. This, not just her age, but who she is, is one of the most surprising features of the Christmas events. That God determines to send his eternal son into the world to fulfill this long-awaited promise that he gave to David. A son who will rule over his kingdom forever. And God, as it were, looks around his world at the time of the first century. As he looks for the woman that he will send his son into the world through. And... He overlooks the Taylor Swifts of her day. Overlooks the Swifties who would die to be like Taylor Swift of her day. And his gaze sets on Mary. Little old nobody, Mary. Mary of Nazareth, verse 26. Look at that there. Luke reports that God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. And I suspect he adds the region of Galilee because he expects his readers to have no clue where Nazareth is. It's like me saying, hey, you know that spot, Kangiangi? You're like, no. (laughs) I kind of heard it. You should. It's on the central coast. It's just south of Wyong. Oh, okay, okay. You need a Wyong, the region, to make sense of Kangiangi. Anyone here from Kangiangi? Didn't think so. (laughs) Nazareth. From the region of Galilee. Mary's just not just a young unmarried woman, she's from nowhere. Mary is not a princess from a palace in Jerusalem, which might have been expected as we hear of a royal birth. We can actually piece together that she came from a poor family, given the sacrifices that she brings of birds and not a lamb. And it's this young, poor, humble woman from Nazareth who is, verse 28, highly favoured by God. Repeated verse 30. And so, verse 48, she rejoices in God who has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. And ironically, becomes the most well-known woman in all of human history. From now on, generations will call me blessed. No one will be talking about Taylor Swift in a hundred years' time. But here we are talking about this woman, this nobody, this humble young woman from Nazareth. 
Now, I want to come to the significance of this surprise in a moment. It connects to the third word. But there's the first surprising thing about this. Here's the second surprising thing, and we probably don't think about this as much, actually, which is the great risk that Mary welcomes into her life. She's just received news through the angel that, on the one hand, is amazing. God is answering his promise given to David through me. Wow, the saviour. And on the other hand, she's just received news that could destroy her life. Why? She's unmarried. The marriage process in her day was a two-stage one, similar to our engagement marriage, but a little bit different. Stage one was a public pledge to move towards marriage. And so even after stage one, the couple could be spoken of as husband and wife, though they still lived with their families. They certainly hadn't come together to form a new family unit, certainly hadn't come together in the same bed. Stage two, which was typically one year later, is where they would come together and consummate the marriage. Mary and Joseph are between stage one and two. And she gets news that she's pregnant. She's going to be pregnant. This explains what Matthew records for us in his account, actually. We read there, because Joseph, when he hears the news of her pregnancy and he knows he's had no part of it, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. He knew what was coming for Mary. He was a compassionate man and wanted to care for her. But, of course, as Matthew tells us, an angel appears to him, sets him straight, and he takes Mary as his wife without sleeping with her until the child is born. In receiving this word from God through the angel, Mary could have imagined that she was receiving a death sentence. And it wouldn't have been surprising to hear her push back and protest, but God, you're going to destroy me. How come? What are people going to think? How am I going to convince them when my belly says I'm a liar? But I put to you the surprise is that she doesn't protest. She doesn't push back that this is too risky and would wreck her life. Instead, verse 38, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Wow. This is a challenge to us, isn't it? Are we, are you, am I willing to take God at his word? Even if we suspect it might risk our comfort, our dreams, our expectations in life, are we willing to... Not just believe in God, that there is a God, but to believe God. To take him at his word. Christianity isn't a message merely about comfort, but about salvation for the humble. Relationship with God through any circumstance, hard or happy. To Entrust yourself to him, that he is good, 
that he loves you, that he is God, you are not. He knows what he's doing. And so take him at his word. I am your servant. There's a challenge that Mary brings to those of us who call ourselves followers of God. Are we entrusting ourselves to him like we see modelled here? Which brings us to the third word to describe this song and the significance of the surprise, that second surprise, the first one, sorry, and it's this, reversal. It's reversal. The back end of the song, if you have a look at it, verse 51, 52, 53, features a great set of Reversals. 51. God has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. 53. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. The picture is pretty straightforward. It's Those who, to all appearances, were winners in life, have actually lost. And those who seem to be the losers in life, they've won. What is this? What's she talking about? She's talking about the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ that we particularly remember coming at Christmas. That every human being has rebelled against God in pride. See, to be proud in your inmost thoughts can actually have a very respectable face, respectable front to yourself, to your neighbours, to your family, to your community. You can be held up. But your inmost thoughts are proud if you refuse to love God, serve God, obey God as he is due. To refuse to see your dependence on God. Refuse to live a life of devotion to God. Oh, you can do nice things for your family and for your community, but when you sideline God in that way, pride in your inmost thoughts setting you, setting us all up to be judged guilty on the day that we stand before him as a just judge. The desperate need of all humanity is a saviour. A saviour who would liberate us from the coming just judgment so that we might actually be justly declared righteous. How? Because of a substitute because of a perfect man who lived the life we ought to have lived but have failed to. The man who would die a death under the judgment of God that we deserve, but he would take it for us. And who would be raised to life, vindicating him to be David's promised son, the forever king, never to die again. The great reversal that Mary sings of is the message of Christmas. Verse 50, his mercy extends to those who fear him. 
who would humble themselves, recognise their need for a saviour, admit that they have no way of providing for it, and so with open hands receive the gift that God delights to give, salvation. Not because of anything that we would do, but because we would trust a saviour. Have you done that? Have you done that? If so, then along with Mary, you can call yourself blessed. This blessing that Mary speaks of, sure, she has a unique experience, but the blessing that she enjoys is for any and every person who would humble themselves and entrust themselves to God, their Saviour. You, along with Mary, can say that God has been mindful of you. The Mighty One has done great things for me. And then, along with Mary, you can now orientate your life with an eternal perspective. This is one of the liberating gifts of responding rightly to the gift of Christmas. See, when are the things that Mary sings of reversed? Notice, if you look closely at the words and the tenses, she sings as though they have already happened. He has brought down rulers. He has lifted up the hum, hungry, humble. He has filled the hungry and so on. But Mary sings these things whilst Jesus is still only in her womb or about to be. Where is the scattering of the proud? Well, the answer is Mary is prophesying. She is speaking of what will be true of the future. She is speaking, singing of what has been true of the past, yes. We just have to open up the Old Testament to see numbers of events where great reversal happens. The people of God, Israel, are enslaved in Egypt. The Lord liberates them in the Exodus and it's Pharaoh, the mighty Egyptian king, who is brought down low. We see it in beautiful individual moments like Hannah, who is given a son. And if you haven't read Hannah's prayer or song alongside Mary's song, I encourage you to go home and do that this afternoon. It is amazing. It is wonderful. It is beautiful. There again is great reversal. Mary sings and speaks of what is about to become true after her moment. As we read Luke's second volume called Acts, we read of one particular ruler who is high and mighty and proud, Herod, who is struck down dead by God immediately because he refused to honour God. He, he sat in the place of God. And so we see these little moments of this reversal. Mary herself is an example of it. She embodies the great reversal. The humble servant lifted up. And yet, for the large part, life seems to roll on as it always does. The rich, sexy, powerful, popular, impressive people are the heroes of our world. And the rest of us pff, spend our time wishing we were just a little bit more like that. Rulers, dictators, roll into neighbouring nations to destroy and slaughter and commit atrocities. 
Where is this great reversal? Where is the bringing down of these evil rulers? Well, Mary is given insight into the end of history. The moment when the resurrected Jesus will return and when he will judge all of human history with justice. The great day of accounting. And at that moment, the great reversal will be complete. Those who have lived in self-seeking pride, maybe the respectable version, but those who have lived without regard to honour God and trust themselves to him as a saviour, they will be lowered. Their pride will be seen for what it is. They will be eternally lowered. But those who have turned to the Lord in humility they will be lifted up. They will be the ones who are seen to be on the right side of history. More importantly, they are the ones who will know their God in a new creation without sin forevermore and who will forevermore delight in God, their saviour. He can be God, your saviour. That can be you. Do you know this? There is nothing more important for you to know to come to terms with this Christmas. And so, the message of Christmas is something to sing about. Of events in our past, the mighty one has done great things for us. He has sent his son who would die on a cross. The giving of his son, Jesus. We sing of life in the present You can know God your Saviour now. You can walk with him every day in the ups and downs of life. That joy is yours to be had now. And we sing about what is to come in the future with great anticipation. A hope of a great reversal. When weak, humble losers who have clung to a Saviour will be lifted up along with Mary. And so might your spirit rejoice in God, your saviour, this Christmas. And might even your lips be able to testify to that. Let me pray. Lord God Almighty, you are holy, you are magnificent, you are altogether powerful. And so before you, We stand as those who, when our lives are openly, honestly laid bare, fall far short. But we praise you that you are a loving God, our Saviour, who has come for us in sending your Son. We praise you that you have lifted sinners up out of the dead. We praise you for the way that you have worked through Mary, through all of history, that we might know you as Saviour. And I pray, please, on behalf of those who do not know you yet as their personal Saviour, Father, that you might give them the greatest gift. For those of us who do, remind us of the greatest gift. Take us deeper into it, stir us, even move us. Help us to live lives of great joy in light of the mighty one who has done great things for us. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.